Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know that almost 30% of us have some level of psychopathic trait? Like you might have one, other people might have two, but you've got them. doesn't mean you're a psychopath. It just means that you're on the scale of psychopathy. You'd be surprised to find out how many people in the general population actually rate on that scale. So what kind of traits are we talking about? And is it possible that some of those traits are useful to us in our everyday lives. Well, that is very true, actually. And it's something that researchers are working to measure to create something like a successful psychopathy scale. To tell us more about all this, we're joined now by Dr. Louise Wallace, a doctoral researcher at Nottingham Trent University and forensic psychology lecturer at Derby University. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, happy to be here. Do you think people would be surprised to find out that maybe they have the traits of a psychopath? I think it would definitely be surprising to to most people to to sort of realize that psychopathic traits exist on a spectrum of personality, just like any other kind of traits do. Like if you're an extrovert or an introvert, for example, that's a scale of traits. You can be kind of mildly extroverted or mildly introverted or to the extreme. And psychopathic traits based on the research that uh, I've been conducting and a lot of other prominent researchers have been conducting uh, really demonstrates that psychopathy does exist on a spectrum. It's not a category you are or you are not. So what are some of those traits? People. Uh, so some of the key traits um, associated with psychopathy could be um, lower levels of empathy, um, not really feeling guilty for having to, to make certain decisions. It can also involve elements of uh, impulsivity, uh, quick thinking, for example. But there's also things such as social potency, which demonstrates you have kind of high levels of charisma. You're really good at getting people to kind of do what you need them to do. So in that way, these traits can be particularly beneficial in certain uh, avenues, such as uh, in corporate situations or other areas of business. Huh. Okay. I'm just processing all this information because right now people are trying to figure out if that's them. They're trying. <laughs> so what are some of the benefits though? Like, are these beneficial to some people? Yeah, absolutely. So based on some of the, uh, the research that I've recently conducted with the, with the newly developed uh, successful psychopathy scale, uh, what we're seeing is uh, individuals who typically score quite high on these traits are demonstrating really good at levels of political skill, uh, particularly in the areas of uh, charisma, uh, decision-making, management of others. And they also seem uh, particularly adept at making uh, functional impulsive decisions, which means that they can make these very quick decisions but not recklessly. 
they seem much better suited to those kind of fast-paced work environments where they need to make quick decisions, they need to kind of keep things organized, keep things rolling on, but they also don't necessarily get held back by thinking about um, perhaps the feelings of others or the needs of others. So it is very kind of unique to certain business environments, uh, certain areas of life. And it doesn't necessarily mean that these individuals are what you would call, you know, good moral characters. What it means is the use of these particular traits that they have allows them to be very successful uh, in their own kind of individual professional arenas. Is this a new understanding of this, Dr. Wallace, the fact that there can be this scale of psychopathy? It's not just one thing or another? So the successful psychopathy scale uh, the one that I've just developed is the is the first of its kind. There are a lot of other scales which measure psychopathic personality traits in a more traditional sense. Uh, however, this is the first one to look at it solely from uh, levels of adaptivity, functionality, and success. Okay, so clearly there's a lot more research that is being done on this. What are you still curious about here? So the next kind of stages of of the research into successful psychopathy is to test whether these traits are actually uh, beneficial and adaptive in other avenues of life. We've kind of ticked the box saying that in some professional areas, uh, these traits are seen to be quite beneficial to the individual. But what we want to do next is see if this translates to other areas of life that it is equally as important for a person to be successful in. So in terms of uh, education, we want to see if these traits are beneficial to those uh, in an education environment. And we also want to see how it affects health. There's a lot of previous research suggesting that those high in what we call prototypical psychopathic traits uh, tend to uh, not experience much anxiety or stress. They're, They're very good at kind of not internalizing bad feelings. And we want to see if this is also kind of something that both translates to successful psychopathy in terms of mental health. But we also want to see if there's any kind of correlations there between psychopathic traits or adaptive psychopathic traits and physical health. So there's still quite a lot of avenues that we're taking this down. And the development of the scale is obviously the equipment that we need in order to do this research. Right. You need people, though, too. So how do you find people as subjects for this? So the people that we found for the previous research uh, was just kind of done in in traditional ways. So we had groups of uh, students primarily because they are obviously a, a target audience that we have a lot of access to as researchers, lecturers. And we also use um, online um, crowds. Uh, sourcing platforms such as Prolific, where uh, you send your uh, surveys to out to individuals, they sign up and they complete. So in terms of having to access these particular niche populations, that is a little bit trickier. And we might have to kind of uh, find some uh, various avenues of funding in order to go into specific environments. But what we're looking at at the moment are just your very sort of essential general population samples. We don't need it to be anywhere specific, uh, particularly in the avenue of health. 
if we get a general population sample of around 500 individuals, chances are there will be health-related uh, either issues or benefits that come just from that general population sample. So that can really give us a good starting point. Right. Psychopaths are all out there among us. Uh, Dr. Wallace, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Mornings with Simi. I think, you know that saying, music soothes the savage beast? That's the song they're talking about right there, because that just puts you in the mood. Our Scott Schatz is back with us after being off for a week and hosting the Mike Smith Show yesterday morning. Scott. Hi, how are you? Isn't that a great song? I, I love that song. I love a slow, chill song. Oh, yeah, big time. And the Bee Gees are so good at that. Yeah, they're good. Ooh, I, I sensed, a, I sensed I mean, a bit of a change I, in that. I agree with you that music soothes the savage beast. I just don't know that that is the first song that I would that I would think of. Like, I'm on a Joni Mitchell kick lately, and I think, like, Both Sides Now is the song for mm. me that would just really... You, what? I think if you put what? that... I, well, no, I'm not disagreeing with you. That's a great song, but I'm just saying, if you put this song on, that is immediately going to make people go, oh... Yeah, that's a great song. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe that's what some of uh, the Baltimore Orioles management needs to listen to. This story makes my head explode because I do feel like we're all just too sensitive these days. And clearly the billionaire owner of the Baltimore Orioles is also a very sensitive soul. Yeah. And I think that this triggered me as much as it did because I am a huge, huge Canucks fan. Like no, I don't know of any game more than hockey and in hockey, obviously, the Canucks are my team. But if you're not familiar, uh, the announcer, the play-by-play announcer for the Baltimore Orioles, his name is Kevin Brown, and he has been indefinitely suspended for some comments he made uh, pre-game recently. Now, I'll just play these for you, and uh, don't worry. It's not like you're going to have to get the kids out of the car or anything like that. Or no, the opposite, really. Ears. Yes. Yeah, just, ha- just have a listen to it. This has been highlighted by many writers and people who are in the know. It was these specific comments that led to Kevin Brown being indefinitely suspended. 2017, the last time the Orioles won a series here at St. Pete. Already got three and two of the chop this year after winning three of 18. The previous three years combined. It is a stark difference, Ben, and it is not a bad race team. That's it. 
That's what he said, and he has been indefinitely suspended because of that. So my understanding of this is that, like, I know the Orioles are doing really well this year. They are. But long-suffering Orioles fans also, like, they had some bad years. Yeah. And so all he did was highlight what a great year they're having this year compared to previous years. Their record hasn't been great. And I guess the owner of the Orioles didn't like that he was highlighting their poor previous record. That's exactly it. So they've won three games already this season against the Tampa Bay Rays, and that was three games is what they won in the previous two years combined against the Rays. And him pointing that out apparently has just irked the general manager who, by the way, is the son of the owner, right? Which feels right. Like right away it feels that's bad. Yes. But what's interesting is the way that the the rest of the league have come to Kevin Brown's side. Like the the Gary Cohen, the announcer for the Mets, like just brutally called out the Angelos, the people who manage and, and own the Orioles, saying like, they, first of all, like, and this point hits home, your team is doing incredible this year, and you've taken the attention off of that and made it about this, yeah. you know? Instead of making it about what everybody cares about, that the team is winning. And and everybody agrees that Kevin Brown, they love they love his work. Absolutely. He's apparently a real up-and-comer, great guy, he's a young guy, but everybody says this is a great guy, and there's lots of people out there who go this is so that's the kind of pressure that you feel that you can't even point out what their previous record was and you know what this is not unusual and this is why it got to me Scott I think you and I both know that in this business there are very sensitive people in charge who you they view any slight anything as a personal insult I I agree with you Simi I think that about this business in general except for the management here at our company they <laughs> they are completely above reproach and have never done anything wrong and I love them with my whole heart <laughs> No, I, it, it sounds That's like I'm a making a, like a bad kind of cup, but I mean that. I really do. I really do. Okay. Please don't fire that me. That was a good one. That was a really good one. But you know what? Uh, the point is made because it's true. It could be anybody, any Thank boss. You. Like, And I'm sure not even in our industry, there's a, people out there with stories about how overly sensitive their boss has been in the past. And if you've got a story like this poor Kevin Brown, let us know. Hopefully he'll be back on the air soon. I know a lot of people are pulling for him. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, let's talk about missing middle housing. It's, it sounds great, but it seems yeah. like it's harder to execute. Yeah. So Victoria, the first municipality in British Columbia to adopt one of these missing middle housing proposals. And the idea is that you change your zoning and approvals to allow the construction of more units on what was formerly a single family home lot. And the idea was you'd get four units, in some cases, six units. Uh, City council, the previous city council in Victoria spent two years putting this in place. They did so with the support and encouragement of David Eby, who was then housing minister. Uh, They went into a civic election last fall and the council said, let's wait and see what the new council wants to do with it because there was a big turnover. But the new council approved Missing Middle in January of this year. So we are first here in Victoria. The model, the one admired by David Eby, he was so happy with Victoria, he appointed the outgoing Victoria mayor, Lisa Helps, as his housing advisor. So here we are, four months into it. How's it going? Not well. There have been no takers. 
it, it's really, it surprises me. I thought this really was going to be the move to, well, the in the long run, the end of uh, single family neighborhoods, the arrival of houses, buildings with a lot more units on them, including in my neighborhood in Victoria. So I was expecting change. Uh, Simi, what's happened? <laughs> yeah, I guess like what is what is the problem? Is it developers you know, aren't doing this or what, no. what's going on? You know, I, I suppose I should have been more cynical. You, you know, you can't be too cynical. It turns out that Victoria City attached so many conditions to these projects that the developers are looking at them and going, nah. They're calling it poison pill requirements. So cities do this. They say you could build on the lot, but then they say uh, setbacks. So you can't build right up to the borderline of the lot. Okay. Uh, then they say uh, front yard setbacks. And then they say footprint. So they limit what you can build on the site to the point that developers go, I, I can't, can't fit anything for units there. I yeah. can't make it work. And there are provisions to protect the character of the neighborhood. Well, the character of the neighborhood, my neighborhood, for example, is a single family neighborhood where some people have put in what were once illegal basement suites and are now legal. So that's the character of the neighborhood. Well, if you're going to suddenly have, you know, four, two, four, six unit developments on the site, that is going to change the character of the neighborhood. But Simi, that's the whole idea of the missing middle. You're trying to create more housing to make more housing available for the middle class, the people who can't afford to buy a big house or build a McMansion. You know, you make a good point there with the basement suites. Like, do you remember how controversial those were? <laughs> people were up in arms about basement suites and people renting these out and building them illegally. And guess what? The world did not end when we legalized those. My neighborhood, uh, the building inspectors used to descend on you and make you sign an undertaking that you would never, ever, ever in your lifetime turn the expanded space in your house into a basement suite. Now they want you to build one, right? So, you know, it, it happens. But this poison pill thing, Sammy, is insidious. And it's interesting. My colleague, Katie DeRosa, did a good piece in the Post Media on the weekend on how badly it's going here in Victoria. And she talked to the housing minister, Ravi Kailan, and he said, yes, we're aware of it and we're concerned. That matters because, remember, this fall, the New Democrats are going to be bringing in legislation to essentially legalize missing middle housing all over the province. They've named 47 municipalities as needing to do more to build housing. Unless they bring in legislation that prevents this kind of poison pill thing where the municipality pretends to support missing middle housing, but puts in the place so many barriers that nobody will do it. Uh, this is going to become one of these things where the government says it's going to do something and it en nothing ends up happening. I mean, Victoria was originally going to be the model for how to do this. It's now become the model for how not to do this. And, and also Vancouver is considering the same thing. Like, yep. This is part of their discussions that they've been having. Yeah, it is. And I mean, we know where this comes from. The government's own studies on this identified it. The problem is NIMBY. 
the local community wants to preserve, the people who already own houses want to preserve the character of their neighborhood, and they don't want bigger developments and stuff crowding into the front yard and all that and parking. They don't want it, right? And councils are elected by people who live there, not by the people who might live there. So the whole idea of a provincial policy, Simi, to to fight these forces of NIMBY was the province is going to come in and impose it so that the local councils don't have any choice. They have to go ahead and approve this stuff. That was the concept. But clearly, uh, as I said, Victoria is the example. You're going to have to do more than just say do it. You're going to have to have regulations that limit what councils can do to stop it. So we're headed into, I think, a real power struggle between the provincial government wanting more missing middle housing and municipalities saying, yeah, yeah, we support the idea, but we're going to put as many barriers in the way as we possibly can to make sure it doesn't actually happen. You know, in Vancouver, like with the duplex thing was a big deal, but it, all I see now are duplexes being built on what were once single family lots and they're going like crazy. Yeah. Whereas uh, Katie, my colleague, uh, found a couple of examples in Victoria where there's a lot sitting there that would be ideal for four to six units. Nothing is happening no developer is coming in and saying, here's my plan, because you, you don't want to spend the amount of money it takes to develop a design for a site and go through the approval process only to find that at the end of the day, yeah. uh, the yeah. city planners turn it down, Simi, because it doesn't fit the character of the neighborhood. Just one final question on that whole housing stuff. Do you get the sense, though, that this is something that the provincial government is going to do more on? Yes, I do. I think the fact that, uh, you know, Ravi Kalong was talked to our reporter, uh, Katie DeRosa, on the weekend and said, yeah, we know what's happening in Victoria and we're concerned that other municipalities will try the same thing. So the province is aware of it and we are promised provincial legislation when the legislature sits uh, in October. And I think you are going to see tougher regulation to make sure that local governments don't approve the idea of missing middle housing in principle and then attach so many poison pills to it that nobody will actually build the stuff. So I do think that's where we're headed. I think the story certainly put the issue on the radar screen, but the New Democrats are aware of this. And I think you're going to see tougher legislation on this In the fall, uh, Union of BC Municipalities Convention in September, I expect the government will be sending out the message to local governments then and say, look, we are serious about this. And Simi, they have to be serious about this. They promised housing affordability. Unless you can increase the housing supply dramatically in cities where people already live, uh, you're not going to make any progress on affordability. And builders will build it. If they think they yep. can sell it, they will build it. Oh, you bet they will. Yeah, no, that's true. But like they, you, you've got to make the economics work or the units will be unaffordable. I mean, EB is the one who pointed this out. He said the way the system works now, it's easy to tear down an existing house and build a McMansion. It's easier to do that than to tear down an existing house and build a duplex. The regulations are tougher. And he says, we have to flip that around and stop encouraging people to build bigger and bigger houses 
and move the incentives to encourage the construction of more units on the same lot. Exactly. Okay, so more to come on housing, but we're also going to talk a little bit about the Order of BC recipients announced yesterday morning. I wonder if Ryan Reynolds is actually going to show up. <laughs> is he going to show up in his Deadpool outfit? That's what oh, I want to know. That would be so good. I've, I've been checking his Twitter feed or his X feed this morning. Uh, as you know, he can be very, very funny himself. Uh, he's talking uh, English football uh, so far. So, uh, But I expect he'll weigh in. I hope he shows up. He's a good British Columbian and uh, and funny as heck. So uh, that's one. There's a couple of others on the list that I am <clears throat> happy to see there. Dr. Penny Ballum, uh, you know, she's a deputy health minister under the Liberals. She was city manager uh, in Vancouver. She was uh, brought in as our sort of vaccination czar uh, during the pandemic. Uh, she's been around a long time. I think she's well earned it. And my old days on the music beat, Simi, Delighted to see the name of Sam Feldman. Yes. Longtime manager of bands, uh, busy in the movie industry as well, and just a great guy. And a nice interview with him in the paper today saying he's honored by this. So Order of BC is a, one of those really nice provincial institutions. It has occasionally gotten mixed up with politics uh, over the years. But for the most part, the recipients are people that are major in sports, the arts community, business, charity, philanthropy. Once in a while, you get a politician in there, but usually it's long after they've left office. Right. And this is something, I mean, when you talk about it being involved in politics, it's because it's a committee of so yeah. a lot of them former recipients who have who select these People. Yeah, so as the Chief Justice of British Columbia, uh, the Speaker of the Legislature, uh, the head of one of the universities, and they also have two former recipients on it. So, yeah, the most controversial naming politically, I would say, was they gave it to Gordon Campbell right after he stepped down as Premier. Right. And there was a general feeling that, hey, you know, let the, the bad feelings and the good feelings about his time in office fade and just pick him later. And that's what they did with Bill Bennett when he was premier. They waited hmm, almost 20 years uh, after he'd left office. And Dave uh, Barrett. Dave Barrett yeah, only got yeah. it in the last 10 years. Yeah. Well, they were so, frankly, the panel, I think, was so embarrassed by the Gordon Campbell going too soon that they gave it to Dave Barrett the next year. So Barrett had been long gone from office at that point. So, you know, once in a while, a former politician, I think it's a good idea. And, you know, we all have little lists in our head. Uh, there was an interesting exchange on Twitter yesterday, and I didn't catch the name, but somebody said, uh, uh, great to see so-and-so win, but why hasn't so-and-so won one of these days? They named somebody else. And somebody immediately tweeted, hey, have you nominated them? Yeah, the exactly. Order of B- <laughs> yeah. Order of BC has a website. It It's open all year. It tells you how to nominate, and you can't nominate yourself, by the way which is a good thing. Uh, And you have to have testimonials from other people, but it's a good process. And, uh, you know, I think if people think there's somebody out there that they think deserve it, well, start thinking about what you'd put in the nomination. And Simi, you can lose the order of BC. You can be terminated. Not very often. The advisory board says if you've criminal or brought the award into ill repute, you can get stripped of it. The most recent one that uh, I think people knew about it at the time in 2020, David Sidhu, business leader, he got right. in for his philanthropy 
He was taken out because he pleaded guilty in the college admission scandal in the United States and ended up going to jail, I think, for three months. Yep. So it can happen. All right. Well, I guess we'll wait to see. I'm sure there'll be lots of buzz in Victoria if Ryan Reynolds does show up. Vaughn might actually show up for that ceremony. <laughs> You're right. I might. I might show up to see Sam, too, because he's a great guy. That's true. All right. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. When you become a dentist, I'm guessing you don't really think that you might also help out solving murders. But these days, police departments are working hard to solve a lot of cold cases. And do you know what they need to do that? They need dentists. Because forensic odontology and DNA fingerprinting are two of the most critical ways that you can help identify people. So those requests for dental records just keep going up and up. So which also begs the question, and I wondered this myself in talking about this story, do you even know how long your dentist keeps your records for? Because who's to say they might not come back 30 years from now and try to track down your dental records, right? Well, we're going to talk more about all of these issues today. Dr. Joe Edsiria Garia joins us now, a forensic anthropologist and forensic odontologist at Mercyhurst University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. How do dentists feel about this, about the fact that their work could be also used to help identify people? Well, when we start our career as a dentist, we generally you, you, you start like to be a clinical dentist. So you are learning how to do a filling, how to do a denture, how to put an implant, how to extract the teeth. And it's like maybe... Sometime after you're starting your career as a dentist or, or your studies as a dentist, that you see this possibility. So in my, in my case, I remember perfectly that I, in the last year of dentistry, so that was in my fifth year, I had the first class in forensic odontology. And I fell in love with the discipline. I just fell in love really? with, with it. Really? <laughs> <So, laughs> yeah. What did you love and about I said, oh, it? I loved, like, the... Um, the, so I used to be uh, an, uh, a, 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 an internship in, in anatomy, so I really loved to process the body. Uh, well, not in process, but dissect the body at those times. Now I'm processing the bodies. And all the anatomy knowledge that you have to have, all the clinical knowledge that you have to have, and you have to be trained in forensics as well. So it's, it's, it's challenging. Every day is different. And and you're doing something really good because when we, I always say that when I do clinical work, so my my as a clinician, I'm specialized in in surgery, and all the patients always say, "Oh my God, thank you, doctor, that was so good." So you feel really good because <laughs> people thank can thank you. Right. But when you are helping the deceased, generally nobody thanks you, and I think it's a very generous way to help the people. So. So are, is this uh, you're helping not on the, the individual, but the families as well? Yeah. So is this something that more dentists forward. are being asked to do then? And you, a lot of dentists, I'm guessing, wouldn't wouldn't think about that, right? When they go into dentistry, that they might get asked to do something like this. Yeah, no, normally it's not something that you will say, oh, I'm going to be a dentist because I want to identify deceased. No, yes. right? it's something that you do not. So what uh, what you are looking forward 
uh, when you start your 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 studies as a dentist, it's like, oh my God, I want to know how to strap an an impacted third molar or <laughs> want to put like these type of implants. That's that's what you're looking for. And that's what you're looking forward. And that's what you like. That's why you would start everything in a, 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 if you want to become a dentist. And it's, I, as I said, it's later on in your in your studies that you say like, oh, wow, this this possibility that it's very like not the uh, it's it's kind of like not the standard uh, career that you that you will go through. But it's a possibility and some people love it. Some people do not like it at all. And I understand. <laughs> Right. But does every dentist have a different policy then uh, about how long they keep dental records for or or should, you know, just in case? Well, that that depends on the country and that depends like in the U.S. depends on the uh, on the uh, states. So you have like states or countries that they are um, they are asked to uh, to keep the records for like five years. There are some others that are come. Uh, they are asked to keep them for twenty years, and there are others that are come to to ask forever. And when you transfer your clinic or whatever, you have to give those 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 records to the next dentist that you work with, or that you will be substituting you or something. So it's so so different between countries and, and states in the U.S. Very different. Okay. So how does this work then? Like, what is exactly forensic odontology? Well, forensic odontology, it's um, the, the application of all the, the technical knowledge about dentistry, uh, and you apply it to the, to the criminal and the civil law. So basically, it's, you have to have all the clinical knowledge that you will get throughout your normal or the standard studies and career. Uh, but you will have to be trained also about like the chain of custody and the uh, like the concept of identification, uh, how to do that. Uh, the, you have to be familiar with the standards and the protocols to uh, identify someone, to estimate the age of someone. So you have to have the clinical knowledge plus uh some of the other knowledge that will apply just to the deceased and uh, also to the living in certain circumstances but they are like all uh in the forensic context so a clinical dentist cannot become in one day a forensic odontologist or a forensic dentist because uh, it's it, it's necessary to have certain knowledge that will imply um work in the forensic context and and also some some training, some experience, of course. Well, you have a fascinating job. Thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. Of course, of course. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. That's Dr. Joe Adsiria Guria, who's a forensic anthropologist and forensic odontologist at Mercyhurst University. Like a forensic dentist helps identify bodies in cold cases, like you know, long cases, helps get those identifications going. And there's been a huge increase in that work. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Mornings with Simi. You want to go away for a few days with people that you work with? Now, I like the people I work with, but that's a hard no from me. And I'm sorry, Scott, don't take that personally. I don't. I don't, but I'm not surprised by this because a lot of people don't love the corporate retreat. I am one of the, and you're you're probably not going to be surprised by this either. I'm one of the dudes that loves them. Oh man, you're the guy who's like whipping out the guitar to sing Kumbaya by the fire, right? I have learned not to do that anymore. But you did. You did do that. it doesn't go over as well as you think it as you think it would. Oh, but no, these I know things exactly always end up being would. fun. They end up everybody ends up being fun and, and making memories, which is why I was so excited to read that the corporate retreat is coming back. It's on the increase. Companies Please, no. are taking why? taking to because Simi, they're discovering that uh, essentially, and you know, we'll hear about more of this in just a sec. Post pandemic, people are feeling disconnected. All these people working from home are feeling disconnected from their teams and from their people. So what do we do? Well, we don't make them come back into the office. We're going to take everybody away for a weekend and we're going to play team building games, right? Do trust falls, all of that great stuff. This all sounds like a nightmare to me. Is there a reason for this though? Like, is it, is there really team building? Like, will you get more productivity out of people? I'm guessing in this day and age, take the money and give everybody a raise. And that would probably go farther. Now, see, and, and that is one of the things that I brought up with my guest, uh, Danielle Riddle. Uh, she is a corporate travel expert and uh, has seen a massive, or I, I believe has. Danielle, do you, can you tell me, have you actually seen this increase in companies booking more and more corporate retreats? Absolutely. I mean, look, in the... In the wake of the pandemic, this is something that's growing exponentially. Um, it obviously stopped over COVID because of the shutdown of travel. But um, now we're seeing so many more companies realise the importance of doing these retreats, especially if they've got a remote or a hybrid um, company set up. So it's just invaluable. That kind of flies in the face of sort of some of the things that we've heard about companies like scaling back on some of the things that, uh, that they do for employees. Why are companies keeping the corporate retreat? Well, I think what corporate retreats achieve are a number of things, but the team bonding and camaraderie aspect of it is so important and, and being able to create but also maintain a really strong corporate culture and I think that's something that's kind of hard to do. Having these relationships just over virtual teams or over Zoom, it's so different being face-to-face. So by providing this sort of outlet and a retreat to do, to go to together, they get such a sense of belonging and, and that corporate culture just starts to really come through. Hmm. So where do these type of things happen? Like, are they taking everyone to Mexico or what does it actually right. look like? Well, I mean, for example, we at Inspired Travel, we actually we do biannual retreats for our team, and a lot of our, a lot of the companies that we work with are the same. But 
it can be as close as the Okanagan or it can be as far as Europe. So it depends on the company and the setup and what they want to do and how they can structure it. The very common is an extra long weekend in Mexico, um, you know, either getting a private villa if it's a small team or going to a resort where it's set up properly for you and then having a range of experiences and breakout spaces. So being able to take you out of your comfort zone really unleashes a lot of creativity and innovation and people really thrive off this kind of experience. And it is about companies understanding and seeing the value of this and really realizing what's going to affect their bottom line at the end of the day. Now, you mentioned that it's like it's great for the employees. You know, you kind of get this retreat or it's like a vacation on the company. But is that all the reaction? Because, you know, you hear some people who are kind of like they moan and groan about it like they have to go. And in some ways you're spending almost like more hours with the people that you work with. I think it, again, this comes down to how it's being managed, how it's being implemented and how it's being set up. So if you're working with a really good retreat company, it comes down to how they can even help you present this to your employees. Because if it's set up properly, everybody should be looking forward to it as, as it is an incentive. And I think it's about integrating it, not just being about going away for a meeting, but going away to be together and also enjoy your, your team and, and the people that you're with. We should be, our work is such a huge part of our, of our life that we should be actually looking forward to these experiences and wanting to be together. And then what happens, because there has to be stories like this, when you take a bunch of people away and because it's supposed to be like a camaraderie builder and, you know, everybody wants to have a bit of fun, we want to frame these things as fun, maybe some people have some drinks, like there's got to be a downside or at least some risk involved here too, right? Look, I think that that comes with anything that you do socially within your company. And that can, that can happen on a team dinner in the city that you live in. So, you know, that can happen at the Christmas party as well. I think it is about, like, making it clear from the get-go that the importance of what this is, if it's actually talked about within the company and really, um, you know, people understand why they're going and that it is a privilege that, that people can be respectful of the setup that you've got. Again, if you, if you take sort of a mass approach to it and make it an obligatory thing that people have to do and there's not much, there's not much being talked about in the office and, and management isn't putting a lot of time into why this is important for them and why it's actually a privilege and, and a form of appreciation for them, then people aren't going to take it seriously. And I think that's why you get a big group of people together and they're told you have to be on this, you have to go, shuttle them onto the buses, get them there, do the job, that's a very different experience to a curated corporate retreat. Danielle Riddle, she's a corporate travel expert and CEO of Inspired Travel, talking about how you have a good corporate retreat, Simi. You have to do things that are new and creative and really try to engage your engage your people because that has more value and says, more, says something as opposed to just like, here's a raise. You know, it says like, I don't think it I does. care. <laughs> no, it does. I, no, I care about your family being able to be fed. So here's well, a raise. What, I think that matters. Too. <laughs> what if we had both? Can we not have both? Listen, I'm being sarcastic here just because, you know, I'm the one For who sure. hosts the, yes. the gatherings at my I, house. I was going to say we had a, a like a mini corporate retreat over the weekend. But it was not like it wasn't done by the bosses. It's just done by me for having a good time. But I don't like I don't think I want to go for a couple of days with okay. people that I work with. So the next time that you have a thing at your house, 
let you let me know ahead of time, and I will come up with some great team building games for all of us to do. Watch how fast people well, leave, Scott. Watch. <laughs> well, how, we're at your house. I know these people. Watch how fast. It's just going to be Scott standing there by himself. <laughs> This is Mornings with Simi. Have you heard all these stories about people who become allergic to red meat after they are bitten by a tick? It's a particular type of tick called the Lone Star Tick. It has been happening in the southern United States, and now there are concerns that this tick is moving northward and that more and more cases are showing up. I know it doesn't even sound like it could be real. sounds like a very bizarre thing, doesn't it? But we're going to find out more about it right now. Dr. Miriam Hanna is with us, an associate clinical professor in pediatrics at McMaster University and pediatrics chair of the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Dr. Hanna, thanks for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. Good morning, Simi. What is this allergy? Like you can actually develop this allergy to red meat because of a tick bite? Uh, Yes, and it sounds just as obscure as you have made it out to be. Um, So we've heard cases of this um, from parts of Australia as well as southwestern U.S. And it's been in our literature for decades now. But essentially, you get sensitized after you're bit by a specific type of tick. And then a couple weeks later, you eat a kind of meat and your body mounts this allergic reaction. can seem kind of not obvious right to begin with because our reactions can be quite delayed by a few hours. But these people then go on to truly have allergies to mammalian meats and for a couple of years potentially would need to avoid them, carry the EpiPen and do their due diligence around that. That sounds like a pretty serious allergy if they have to carry an EpiPen. So does it fade away after a few years? Um, so we don't have millions of cases of this, but in a proportion of them, as long as they can avoid getting re-bit by a tick, that, they can, that this can resolve over time. And again, they work quite closely with an allergist to kind of prove that it's safe to have it again. Um, but we do, we recognize that there are patients that, have this allergy for a period of time in their life, and then may, it may resolve. Right. Okay. So we know there are, you know, about like 100,000 people in the U.S. that have had this since 2010. Uh, is it something that we don't have to worry about here in Canada? So as our climate is changing, and as you've nicely pointed out, as these ticks are migrating more north, we are seeing that same potential now start to happen here where Canadians can get bit by a tick here and then go on to develop this allergy in the future. Early days yet, we're not seeing lots of cases of this Lone Star tick or the allergy associated with it, but it's certainly on our radar and has been for a number of years because obviously we go down south or we go to other parts of the world where this might be an issue and can come back and start to show symptoms of this allergy. Yeah, what, so what would the symptoms be? How would you even know? Other yeah, than so, the eating red meat, like how would you know? Yeah, so you develop an allergic reaction and, and you work closely with the doctor to kind of narrow it down or figure it out or work backwards, right? So you, don't, you kind of don't know until you have symptoms of an allergic reaction. Scary as it might sound, hives, swelling, rash, trouble with your breathing, GI upset, um, you name it, that constellation can happen. And it doesn't immediately happen while you're at the dinner table. So it may not be like obvious that you, you've just triggered this. It could be several hours later. And then through that careful history process and working backwards, you kind of deduce it 
working with a doctor that that's your issue or that's the trigger. Right. Now, for some people, they'd be like, well, I don't eat that much red meat anyway. But some people, this would be a, a pretty big deal for. So are there protein concerns here? Like, do people have to radically change their diet? Um, so they would they would need to change their diet and avoid all mammalian meat, all red meat, all meat, and like look for other sources basically to replace that B12 and kind of the iron-rich foods that we get usually from eating meat. There's other sources, but yeah, they, they would be looking at a dramatic change to their diet if they're big meat eaters to begin with. Now, I know tick bites in general are something that we should avoid, but how do we do that? Yeah, Um so your avoidance measures for tick bites, you know, using a proper repellent, making sure that you're wearing appropriate clothing, taking a good double check of your skin after you've been in an area where it's high risk for potentially having a tick bite. So doing that once over skin check just to make sure that you you remove those guys. Um, those are all important steps to take. And again, it's not just some parts of Canada. It's when you're traveling overseas in parts of the U.S., Lone star ticks have been around for quite a while, right? Other tick-borne diseases are on your radar, but you don't want to get bitten. Don't want to talk to me about developing an allergy to red meat afterwards. No, you do not. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about that this morning. My pleasure. Have a great rest of your day. You too. That's Dr. Miriam Hanna, an associate clinical professor in pediatrics at McMaster and pediatrics chair of the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, uh, talking about what, what's known as like this lone star tick in the United States. Something like 100,000 people since 2010 have actually been bitten by this lone star tick and then developed an allergy to red meat. And I know when you hear that, you think, well, that's bizarre. How can that happen? It just, it's something to do with the type of protein. And it, that's, that's what happens is that for a couple of years, then people have an allergy to red meat. And there is concern that this Lone Star tick could potentially move northward if things get warmer up here. And just one more thing for us to worry about, but these are very, very strange cases. And how do they think it's moving around? Well, they think migratory birds, also just like birds, deer, domestic animals, you name it, that this could, they could all be impacted by something like this. Crazy stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. What's going on in BC? Now, I asked that question because according to statistics, our province is experiencing a significant increase in online child sexual exploitation cases. More reported cases that the police departments are trying to get a hold of, and it's hard for them to do that. These are challenging cases to kind of dig into. So what can also be done to prevent them? I'll try to get to the bottom of this now with the help of Dr. Caitlin Mendez, who's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Western University and the Canada Research Chair in Inequality and Gender. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Why are there so many cases right now of child sexual exploitation? Well, I think I think that there's two things going on. One, I think, has to do with the fact that in recent years, we definitely see younger and younger kids having access to digital technologies. And they're getting access to things like smartphones and computers and tablets uh, from a much younger age than they ever had before. Um, but I think another thing that's definitely going on is the fact that we also see um, just the way that these, these crimes are being reported. So I definitely think that, you know, it's not necessarily that... Um, that the cases are higher in BC than in other provinces. Um, but certainly the way that we're recognizing this is a big issue and it's getting reported a lot more. All right. Okay. So people are, are more aware. We're actually learning. That's right. 
Okay, so what classifies as child sexual exploitation? Um, Well, I think that there's different categories, and I think it really depends on the province. So it can be things from, um, you know, images that are are intimate or sexual, um, images or videos where there's intercourse going on, where there's sadism. There are actually different levels, um, and it really depends, I think, on the province, what, what, what counts as that. Right, and what are the challenges in trying to track down the perpetrators here? Well, it's hugely challenging. Um, there's, you know, the internet has been really great, but it, it also presents a lot of challenges because it needs, whereas before when children were often exploited, it was by someone in their community, someone who lived locally. Now with the internet, it's easy for someone to exploit a young person and they can be anywhere in the world. And I think that it's very uh, clear that, you know, there's challenges in terms of figuring out who is, who is perpetrating this, where are they located? And then that brings in a whole range of challenges because often the perpetrators outside the jurisdiction, you know, uh, we did see six, the six successful, um, uh, there was the Dutchman who uh, was charged right. with uh, the case of Amanda Todd, right? So him being extradited to Canada, but that's hugely costly, resource intensive, it requires the cooperation from other governments. So it really depends on who the person is. If the child knows the person in real life, that can make it easier. But if they don't know who they are, if it's just someone they've met online, it's really, really challenging to do anything about it. So then how can we prevent these cases from happening? I feel like, you know, we always talk about parents needing to know more about what their kids are doing online, but how insidious can it be? Oh, this is a huge issue. (laughs) I think most parents have no idea, you know, how powerful these technologies are, how easy it is for perpetrators to get in touch with young people. I think that it's really key that, you know, often parents, I think, I think naive, you know, they think that, oh, social media is great. Instagram, it's just puppies and cookies. And, um, you know, it, it's really kind of um, just like fun and play. And that may be their experience of social media, but it's absolutely being used as a tool. So there's key things I would say, if you're a parent, if, you, if your child has a tablet, a device, if they're using social media, it's really important to talk to them about what are they doing online? Who are they talking to? What kinds of things are they seeing? You don't have to start by with these conversations of, has anybody ever sent you an intimate image? You can start by saying things like, hey, has anything happened online that has made you uncomfortable or you found strange? So I would say as a parent, it's about having these regular catch-ups with your child. It's not just like the one sex talk. Um, right. You need to be talking to them about it regularly. You make such a good point there, though, because I think that's what happens is, right? Like parents think that, oh, it's the serious talk, and then it becomes yeah. difficult to have that talk. But really, it's about asking every day, hey, what are you up to? What are you looking at? What's that all about? Exactly. Exactly. What's going on? You know, like what, what's happening? And you don't even have to, about, have to ask about them. You know, hey, has anything weird ever happened to your friends? Or you can take cases that have happened in the news. Has this, has this ever happened? Do you know anything like this? And use that to start dialogue. And then you can ask them things like, well, what would you do if this happened to you? What kind of support would you want? What kind of help would you want me to provide for you? So you can have those kinds of conversations and take them through like the next step. So that's one thing. The second thing as a parent is when young people join social media, they're not actually supposed to have an account until they're 13 anyway. So that's something I think a lot of parents don't really realize. So that's the social media company saying, really, that's kind of the, the minimum age at which a child should be using these apps. But if you do decide to, to have them use one, you really need to make sure you go in and make the privacy settings to the strongest. Because most of the time when you open up a social media account, it allows anybody to contact your yeah. child. And that opens up huge risks. So you usually have to manually go in and change the privacy settings. So I would say that's something to do. If you don't know how to do it, 
Google it. There's YouTube videos that will show you for whatever app. They will show you how you can change the privacy settings and make them subscriptive. I also um, wonder but, about this, Dr. Mendes, is that do we, do parents underestimate what it actually means when it's, when it says like child sexual exploitation? Like we, we may think the worst of that, but there are other, um, you know, ways that there is exploitation that might just be a picture. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think that's it. It really only takes one image. Um, and I think another key thing is that a lot of times young people may not even know that they're being exploited because they think that this is someone they're in a relationship with. So there's the process of grooming that's really, really powerful. And we've seen this actually time and time again, why young people don't report. It's because, oh, this is someone I care about. Yeah, I'm sending them intimate images, but they have no idea. You know, maybe they think that the, the person that they're sending the images to is someone their age. Um, maybe not. Maybe they know that they're older but they really think that this is a, you know, a caring relationship. And so they don't really understand the ways that these images or the way that they are being exploited and groomed. And we've seen many, many cases in the past where this kind of grooming has gone on for years. So these children are very willingly, you know, producing images. Um, and I think that, that that's what's really disturbing. It's kind of been normalized too for them, hasn't it, right? Because they may know other people who are doing the same thing. Well, I think another thing that parents don't really understand is that, you know, our intimate lives, our relationships are increasingly happening through phones and devices. So you're absolutely right. Just like it's normal for them to communicate, you know, forge relationships through the through these devices, it's normal for them to have, you know, maybe romantic relationships through these devices as well. So absolutely, they are not the only ones who are sending intimate images. I think it's definitely something that... Um, that many young people are doing, and especially, you know, if you talk to older older people, you know, 18 plus, they're meeting partners through dating apps. So yeah, they're, they're definitely sending sexy images, flirty images, messages all the time. It's just normalized. Are police getting better at, um, you know, connecting the dots here and going after these cases? I think police definitely, all, all, the, all the police officers I speak to understand that this is a huge issue, but I think it's a question of whether they have the resources and the training to catch up with what's going on. And again, it often requires cooperation between different levels of police, between law enforcement agencies and different provinces or even in different countries. So it's not an easy solution, even though the police maybe know that this is a huge issue, they just may not have the resources or the technology changes so fast. That's the other thing. Um, you know, it, it's so hard to kind of play catch up with what's going on. Oh, so interesting. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Caitlin Mendez, Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at Western University, the Canada Research Chair in Inequality and Gender, talking about child sexual exploitation. Uh, increasing number of cases in Canada, uh, and in fact, BC has more cases. We account for 54% of Canada's reported incidents, although Dr. Mendez makes a great point. Is it just that because I think also the Amanda Todd case and the Aiden Coban trial as a result of that, it is a much more widely discussed thing here in BC. And maybe that has prompted more awareness, as Dr. Mendez said. So people go, hey, wait a minute. I read about that. That's wrong. And so they're reporting it where that might not be the case in other provinces, right? But still, really important discussion to have with your kids as well. This is Mornings with Simi. 
I'm sure a lot of you out there use navigation apps to get where you want to go. But you know what? They don't always give you, you know, all the information that you need. For instance, what could, if you could use an algorithm that would actually show you where a crash was most likely to happen? Maybe it looks like the fastest route, but it's also the route where they have the most accidents. Would that be useful to you when you're out there driving around? Probably. I mean, researchers at UBC have been working on developing this new algorithm for mapping the safest route. And they have been using real-time crash risk data. And it could eventually be integrated into navigation apps like Google Maps. We're going to find out more about it right now with the help of one of the people who's been working on this. This is Tarek Gould, who's a graduate student at UBC's uh, UBC, specializing in transportation, safety, and researcher for the study. Tarek, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. How did you guys do this? Tell me about this. So there was a gap um, in the way that we use our navigation apps. So we can always say, how do we get from point A to point B in the fastest way possible? Um, but until now, the safest way possible wasn't really possible. Um, so what we, what we use is we use uh, vehicle trajectories. So the position and velocity and acceleration of different road users. And we can convert this into something we call uh, traffic conflicts or near misses. Um, after taking all of these near misses, we put it through our model, and it can give us uh, the real-time crash risk. So you can think about these near misses as, say, the time it takes for one vehicle that's going at a certain speed to collide with a vehicle in front of it if it's going faster, and no evasive maneuver is taken. So you take all of these conflicts, turn them into a distribution, and then you find the probability that said distribution is greater than zero. So if you have, say, you're one second away from a crash or two seconds away from a crash, well, if you're zero seconds away from a crash, then you just crashed. Um, so that's the core mechanism of how we can predict these conflicts. Okay, so you can map all of that. Like, how did you do this? How were you examining people's driving? So we had uh, data from downtown Athens that was uh, put online in an online data set. Um, this was drone data. So there were 10 drones flying over the downtown core. And they provided all of the trajectories to us. Uh, we took these vehicle trajectories and we processed them into these conflicts, which allowed us to route people from point A to point B in the safest way possible. Uh, and then we examined the different possible routes. So we, start, we had different origins and different destinations, and we were able to find, okay, how is the safest route compared to the fastest route? Okay, but most people, they kind of want the fastest route, don't they? Yes. So one of the biggest uh, contributions that we think or the biggest ways forward is actually for vulnerable road users. So we have cyclists, for example, who would be more willing to take the safest route uh, as opposed to a motorist. But that said, even motorists like other uh, you know, drivers and uh, people in trucks, cars, what have you, um, even they, they still consider safety in their decisions. Many people want to avoid highways for that specific reason due to the perceived safety. Okay, so you're saying if people want, if there's like a high-risk crash area where there's a lot of near misses, can you map that out too? Exactly. So our, our algorithm functions by using these near misses, and we can find where these locations are. We put it into our algorithm, and it rep represents it in terms of crash risk. Okay, do you have to do and, this independently for every city? Like, for instance, okay, if you're going to provide this data for Vancouver, you have to do it in Vancouver. For Toronto, you have to do it in Toronto. Yes, so it's, it's site-specific, and we use the data from the specific location. So the idea is that we use real-time data. We have all of the trajectories of said vehicles, pedestrians, cyclists, 
we process it all locally and it'll be site specific. So it will work for Vancouver. It will work for Boston separately. It'll work for Athens separately, uh, regardless of where you implement it. So can you even check then to see for pedestrians, for instance, is this uh, a more risky area for pedestrians or something like that? Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, it's a matter of creating a specific pedestrian model. So in the uh, research paper that was recently published, it focused primarily on vehicles. Um, but you can just as easily swap out the vehicle for a pedestrian. So you would, instead of considering all, cra- all conflicts or interactions that involve vehicles, you would say all interactions that involve pedestrians and vehicles or pedestrians and other road users if you want to go down that route as well. Right. Okay. So this is a really, this is useful. Do you think this could help prevent more crashes, Tarek? It can reroute people. This is the uh, user optimum. So this is similar to, let's say, uh, most navigation apps. How do you get from here to there and minimize your own personal risk? We are currently working on something that is the system optimum. That's if you have a fleet of vehicles, how can you optimize safety across the network? Uh, Though more details on that one are, are to come. That one is still in development. Okay, so have you had any interest from some of the navigator apps to say, hey, you know what, we could incorporate this data? Uh, Thus far, we haven't worked with them yet. Um, I do believe a few of them have uh, previously expressed interest in safety in their own press releases. So at this time, we're not currently working with them. Oh, come on. That's the dream, though, isn't it, Tarek, right? You want to sell this to the, the big guys. Well, yeah, well, why not? Of course. I mean, uh, yes. <laughs> they're, they're interested, uh, you know, uh, we can reach out. <laughs> right. So the, what's key here, I guess, what I find interesting is that this isn't just for people in cars. So you can actually see where, let's see, even ICBC would want to know where are there more pedestrian accidents? Where are there more like cycling accidents? Like you can show all of that. Yeah. So the underlying technology um, that brings us all together, which was developed here at UBC, is this idea of the real-time crash risk using what we call an extreme value theory models or family of models rather. Um, So by only using trajectories and not using historical crash data, we can predict the crashes with a high degree of accuracy. Um, So many different agencies can make great use of this. Right. Okay. So this would be useful information, I think, for people to have. But I find that most people, they're in such a rush, though, Tarek. And that's the thing. Like, will people be more careful if they have this data? That's what you really want. Potentially. I mean, I think we have different kinds of people. There's some people who won't care at all about safety. They're like, I just get me there the fastest way possible. Um, they're just going to go for it. Um, other people might say, all right, I will consider safety a little bit. Um, and that's one of the things that we investigated, the trade-off between safety and mobility. So we found that a 22% improvement in safety is associated with just an 11% reduction in, or in, in increase in travel time. So it seems like it's weighted more to the safety side. So you can have, like, say, like a five-minute increase in travel time, but a far greater improvement of a percentage of safety. Um, so, so this would allow for um, effectively a midpoint to be selected. So you can balance between the two objectives. And you don't just have the safest and fastest route, but kind of a sliding scale in between. Right. I wonder what people would say, though, if you asked them that question. Like, if you had to be two or three minutes late versus knowing that you were gonna not going to get into an accident... Which one would they choose? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very interesting question. Um, and I, I think we're going to have a wide variety of uh, answers to that one. And again, I think it really depends on whether they are driving or if they are uh, cycling. And can you flag some really problematic areas? Like were there areas that you came across where you went, boy, look what goes on here every single day? 
Uh, in, in some in some cases, yes. There's there's definitely areas that are worse than others, um, and there's also two types of crash risk that we noticed. So one of the key contributions of this is it's real time. So the crash risk fluctuates. Uh, in our case, from like four minutes, we we analyzed it in four minute increments um, and then combined it together. But it fluctuates from uh, from section to section. So every four minutes, you might have an area where it's one percent, another area where it's or another uh, four minutes where it's two percent. And these fluctuations are important because there's a different there's a difference in how you can treat these locations. If it's something that's chronically unsafe, then maybe you need to do some traditional infrastructure. Maybe you need to tear out some of the roads and change the geometry. Right. Or like a red light camera or something like that. Potentially. Potentially. Yes. Uh, Something more traditional, like traditional approaches, like maybe more like a better cyclist facility or uh, typically something infrastructure. Um, As opposed to if it's you just have these short term peaks and then it's otherwise safe Uh, with something like that. Actually, you can use some of the technology was developed at UBC. Um, So, for example, real time signal control. So we, we can change the traffic signal timings to improve safety in real time using these uh, indicators. So interesting. Thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. That's Tarek Ghul, who's a graduate student at UBC specializing in transportation safety, and he's a researcher for this study that they did. And so they're collecting data. They're using real-time like crash risk, real-time data as people are driving around on the roads to figure out what the safest route is, not the fastest route, which is what most people are looking for. It's what you're looking for, right, when you're using a navigation app of some kind. But they're saying, hey, you know what? This might take you 10% longer, this route, but it is the safer route, not as prone to risk. And they can show the real time risk that is happening, actually. So I wonder if people would take that or if they just want to get, do you just want to get to where you're going as fast as possible? Uh, Let me know, simi at cknw.com. Like, I'm always curious about whether those red light cameras work because there's a lot of intersection cameras uh, that are around now. I know ICBC had those installed and and they give you signage. So you can see the sign is there, but the number of people I still see blowing through those intersections, blowing through those red lights, I think, boy, you really, like, are they getting tickets? They really are paying attention because there's a lot of signage warning you about that and yet people still do it. I feel like we're just going to open up Pandora's box when it comes to traffic issues out there. So go ahead if you want to weigh in. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899.